Do you ever wonder why you spend so much time working on your marketing, yet it doesn't seem to give you anything in return? It's a tough subject to crack and I also feel your pain. I doubt you'll hate marketing as much as our next guest, who's actually made a career out of it. We're going to take you on a journey you'll feel familiar with over the next half hour or so, as we're making conversations about messaging count. First, what's new with you, Wendy? Well, look out for our guest host next week and a role reversal as I share with you my own pivotal conversation and my why for starting the show. But now, it's my pleasure to give you Johnny Cooper from Johnny Hates Marketing. So where does that name come from, Johnny? I have to ask. Yeah, it, it emerged as a really cool brand through no fault of mine. I was on a podcast with a, a Canadian host about two and a half years ago. And this business that I run now was a branded as a success party. So I thought that was a great idea. Nobody else agreed, but I thought it was. <laughs> I managed to get the successparty.com. I was really proud and all that. Anyway, so I'm on, I'm on this podcast and we were talking about who I serve and we're talking about rubbish marketing ideas and particularly rubbish marketers who really push stuff down your throat. And I was talking to the host about a pitch that I'd managed to get myself on one of these pitch calls, you know, this discovery call where the guy just pitches at you for 45 minutes. And I was saying how rubbish it is, you know, I said, I hate all that. Anyway, the host said to me, I don't think you really like marketing, do you? I said, well, not that type, really. And he said, spoiler alert, Johnny hates marketing. I just went, say that again. That sounded really good, that did. Hmm. And you know what? Within six weeks, I rebranded the whole thing. So my Facebook group's called Johnny X Marketing. I've got JohnnyXMarketing.com, obviously, because nobody else had thought of that. And I've written a book called Johnny X Marketing, 99 Ways to Attract Your Ideal Clients Without Paid Advertising. So, yeah, it just fits me like a glove, basically. I wear it like a jacket, to use another metaphor. It's interesting where some of these ideas come from, isn't it? Just fell out of the sky, that Yeah, one. my own Making Conversations Count came from becoming a queen of on Twitter for Making Conversation. And I was like, oh, that's really lovely to be given a nice award, you know. But I just extended it a bit, making them count. We've got to make them count. There's no point just making conversation out of nothing and having no reward or benefit to it. So we made it count. Well, of course, a count is a kind of royal status, isn't it? Just like a queen. Certainly a countess. I hadn't thought of that, Johnny. Making conversations countess. (laughs) (laughs) I'm full of this stuff. You're welcome to that one, by the way. You can have the countess of making conversations. (laughs) Doesn't have quite the same ring to it. No, it doesn't. And sorry, it's just taken me back to the box set that I haven't quite finished yet, which is Bridgerton, where there's all duchesses and and Viscounts. So, yeah, perhaps best not to go down that smutty route. So, Johnny, conversation is key and it's critical. Every business depends on having really good conversations. It really does, doesn't it? Where does it figure in your life and the importance of what you do? My tribe are coaches and therapists. And what I encourage them to do, and certainly when they work with me, they get forced to move away from one-on-one sessions you know, typically 50 to 100 pounds an hour kind of thing. 
for some kind of healing session or, you know, consultancy session or something like that, therapy session. Move away from that into selling longer-term engagements, basically about productizing services, you know, creating a program rather than just selling your time by the hour. People buy products more than they buy just ideas. So it makes your sales cycle easier, selling programs. It makes it easier on another level because you don't have to sell as many if you're selling an expensive program. So what I teach people from the get-go, even if they're just starting out as a coach or therapist, is look, build a program. Just sell a few expensive things to a few people. So much easier than trying to sell your time by the hour because you'll never make a fortune doing that. The turnover of clients with hourly sessions is ridiculously high. You've still got to find people to talk to, even if you just charge them 50 quid and off they go, you know. So conversations are at the heart of this. And, you know, I guess my most powerful byline that I use when I'm helping people is spot someone who looks like your next ideal client on social media, you know, by a comment or a post that they've made or something like that. And just invite them onto a conversation. Talk about how you can help. <clears throat> just say, hey, look, you know, I feel your pain or I love your work or something like that. And I say, look, you know, I might be able to share some insights. Let's jump on a quick call sometime soon, see what pops out. It's that kind of gentle way into a conversation because you never know. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. If, lines. Yeah, yeah, you never know, know where a conversational some, some, lead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the things that really stymies experts online. So we'll, we'll say, you know, coaches, therapists, trainers, consultants, public speakers, those kind of people, authors, is that they'll go too far to try and prejudge a particular lead. You know, they'll be their own marketing and sales department and decide that this person isn't worth talking to. Well, you know, I've built a business and built a career as the antithesis of that. I'll talk to anyone who looks like they need my help because you never know, do you? Affordability is another kind of paradox in all that. Generally, people will find the money to pay for something if they really want it. It's not even about trying to pre-select wealthy people. It's just talking to people and making offers, isn't it? So I'm 100% with that, Wendy. I mean, starting conversations is the key skill, which most coaches and therapists seem to be lacking at outset. Johnny, I don't know about you, but I always remember my dad saying to me, Wendy, you know, what goes around comes around. So what you give will come back to you tenfold. If you can lead by giving, you never know whether that person's going to want what you need or not, but you never know how many people they know that might need what you've mm. got. And I've seen this with people that have approached me. And if they've approached me badly, then mm. they've kind of made that dent. They've dented my brain to say I wouldn't go to them. Whereas if they had a really good approach mm. and they were open, that yeah. dent, you know, it wouldn't rust, if you like. It would. <laughs> I like it the would, concept of denting your brain. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's kind of keeps them in your mind that their approach was great. So when you recognise somebody that might need their services, mm -hmm. you would just polish off that contact and say, I yeah. know somebody that I spoke to, I haven't used them, but they made a really good impression on me. See what they think, if it's you know good for you. So mm. there's, there's that power as well of the which is what LinkedIn is, isn't it? Second and third degree connections. Mm. You just never quite know how far your reach is going to go just 
I must say, I, I get a bit impatient about that approach of kind of putting stuff out there and then expecting your audience to be advocates. In my experience, I think it's more productive to give them a particular task that you're looking for them to achieve for you. So on a call, for example, if it's clear that they're not going to be a client, we'll usually be saying to them something like, OK, but, you know, based on what we talked about today, who springs to mind as one person right now who'd benefit from what we talked about today? And give them a very kind of prescriptive task to actually come up with a name. And, you know, you'll see their eyes going up top right, I think it is, while they're thinking of a name. And they'll give you a name. And then it's just a matter of saying, well, would you mind introducing us on Messenger? You know, that kind of thing. And get the job done there and then. Because I agree with you, but I think it's just a little bit, it's a little bit spray and pray, isn't it? Just expecting people to go out there and, and sell your stuff on your behalf. So I call it intelligent referrals, you know, where you just literally say, who, who springs to mind right now, you know, as one person who benefits? Yeah. I was sort of thinking that later on, if it's a bad approach, you would immediately dismiss them. If they came up in conversation as the person to go to, you go, oh, no, don't. Rather than, oh, yes, no, that was a good thing. I agree. Not many people ask for that past that person. Exactly. You know, yeah. Who yeah. else do you know that you can help? which can really dig out some great nuggets of business and relationships. It's that bravery of asking the question and how do you phrase that question, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, it's strange, that B word and the connected F word, fear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it, it's strange, isn't it, how we seem to have expanded the, the real definition of fear, you know, since the world wars and since we stopped having to run away from angry tigers and things like that. I mean, that's what fear was designed for, isn't it? You know, as a, literally as a self-preservation emotion. People now claim fear when it's actually just anxiety, perhaps, you know, anxious about what might happen. My number one tactic there for overcoming fear to simply detach from the outcome, to not imagine what might happen, good or bad. So, for example, when you're on a sales call, and, you know, you're with somebody who's really got a good potential to actually buy your product. Just forget about doing that. Just detach yourself from the outcome and say, well, look, what I'm doing here is I'm having a conversation with someone. If they buy, it's a positive. If they don't buy, it's neutral. I'm no worse off than I was when I started. You can't lose a sale. You didn't have it in the have first place. Have it in place. the first place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. I think once you get into that mindset of true outcome detachment and really understand what that means, you don't have a client-shaped hole in your business that only that person can fill. Sure, you need some clients at some point, but it doesn't matter whether it's that one or the next one or the one after. With that kind of relaxed approach to it, you find that you actually make more sales because you're then in a mindset where you can just give, you can provide service and value, and you can coherently explain why they should be part of your world, part of your program, without putting pressure on yourself to actually make a sale at that point. When you do that, you'll find times without number, people just ask you at the end, great, I'm in, how do I do it? Uh, where do I sign? That kind of thing. I've always been a big fan of there's only three outcomes. There's yes, no, not yet. If you can sort of get to that, because timing can be really key. Mm. To well, I'm, I'm going I'm to I'm challenge you on that. What we do in JHM and, and all the programs that we teach, we want a hell yes or a hell no. And a hell no can mean I ain't ready yet. But what we don't want to be doing is chasing people around the houses. When people say to you, yeah, I th I th do you know what? I've just got to get my new website built. And then, you know, I've, I'm just finishing this course off. And then the kids are going back to school. And 
you know, give me a call in February, that kind of thing. All that is, is hell no, but I'm too polite to say that. It's usually, I don't know who you are yet, really. Mm. So how am I going to make a decision until I feel comfortable? Uh, yeah, about I mean, there, there are a lot of nuances, you know, I appreciate them. But it, it seems to me people are mostly saying, you haven't convinced me that this offer is a worthwhile use of the money that you're asking for it. I mean, that, that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? But it's a hell no. And what we do when we set up the perfect sales score as a coach or therapist, you'll start off by saying, look, if it appears that we're a fit for working together, I'm going to tell you about my program. And all I ask at the end of it is you give me a hell yeah or a hell no. Is that okay? And then they're predisposed and they're warned that's the outcome that we're all expecting from the conversation. I don't think there's that middle ground always just falls into the hell no pit. And if you allow it to take six weeks before it falls into the hell no pit, that's six weeks you've wasted chasing somebody around the houses that was never going to buy from you in the first place. So I'm a little bit more binary. Yeah, I think that's perhaps where it can differ to industry to industry. Oh, yeah. Who you're dealing with. I think it can differ as well in terms of other factors like budgets and timescales. There are some edge cases, Wendy. Yeah, yeah this, it comes back to that instinct, though, doesn't it? If you're a good listener... You know, even if you're being told yes, but not re- not yet, you know, really, it's a no. I agree. And I think, you know, if you're working with organisations, with corporates, where there may be multiple decision makers, you know, there may be a decision tree where one person has to sign it off and then hand it to the next person. Yeah, I mean, you, you're not going to get a yes on the day kind of thing. But I think for those of us who are solopreneurs working with other solopreneurs, there's a meaningful conversation to be had where you can get to the bottom of whether they're a fit for your program or not in a conversation. And the decision can be made. The other thing is this. I think if you're a coach or therapist, you only want to work with decisive people. You know, they're going to tell you a lot by their behavior on that first call where you're explaining the program to them. You're going a lot about how they're going to behave when you start working with them, if someone's dithering about and going, oh, I don't know, you know, give me a ring in a month's time, they're probably not going to be very rewarding clients, you know, because we're, as coaches and therapists and consultants, we want people who can get on with the work and get it done. You know, we're, we're going to be laying out a roadmap in front of them to change their life in some way or their business. And we want them to actually do the work. We don't want people who are just going to take a bit of information and go away and have a think about it. So I I think in the sales process that I've described to you, working with the audience that we work with, I think it's really important that they're able to just, you know, take a breath and go, hell yeah, I need to do this. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's by proving the value and service that you can provide, isn't it, in that conversation? that opening conversation, yeah. In terms of everybody that comes on the show, Johnny, I ask them to think about a personal pivotal conversation that's created a turning point for them, hoping really just to sort of give some inspiration to anybody who's thinking about starting out or has just recently started out or has had to change everything that they're doing, you know, because I think everybody's story can really resonate. Come on, Johnny. What's your pivotal Well, I can remember it vividly, actually. This is one of a number of answers I could give to that question. I was in my late 20s. I was a professional musician. 
and I was broke. I was living in South London. By the way, you know the difference between a, a professional musician and a 14-inch pizza? You're going to have to educate me. A 14-inch pizza can feed a family of four. Ah. Ah. <laughs> <anyway>, you see. <laughs> I didn't have a family of four at the time. I couldn't even feed myself. I had this clapped out old car and it broke down in Streatham High Street in South London. And I actually abandoned it, pulled the number plates off and just walked away. I called my mate with his transit van and we got all my gear out the back, you know, the keyboards and all that kind of thing. I left the car, I just abandoned it. It was those days when they didn't do chassis plate checks, I think. So about three days later, I had a police aware sticker on it and it disappeared. But what I did there, this is my pivotal conversation. I went back home and there's a copy of the Evening Standard, the London Evening Standard. And I, I opened it up looking for jobs. <laughs> so I went in the small ads in the back and there was this tiny little ad. It was, you know, one of these inch by inch little blocks. And it said, closers wanted £1,000 a week. So I ignored the closers wanted because I had no idea what that meant. And just focused on the £1,000 a week. I thought that would be nice because I was earning about £1,000 a year at that point. And I found a up and it was Mobin Kitchens. Oh, OK. I Home remember Improvement Mobin Company yeah. based in Crawley. So I went up on the train into the office and I was wearing this bright yellow, canary yellow jumper that my girlfriend had knitted. had a keyboard around it black and white piano keyboard. And I had my favourite, because I thought I looked smart, bright red skin-tight chinos that I used to wear on stage and white patent leather shoes. So you, you imagine looked the like scene. a professional musician. Probably looked like a, a D-head. I don't know, can we swear on this podcast? <laughs> we'll bleep you. <laughs> yeah, I like a D-head. I, I went into this office and this, this chubby guy, typical sales manager, you know, chain smoking at his desk because they could do it in those days he said johnny is it i went yeah right he started telling them about kitchens and all that sort of thing I said yeah that sounds right i reckon i could do that it was commission only anyway i don't think he was taking much of a risk when he said go on then you're in <laughs> <laughs> There's the anyway, yeah exactly within six weeks i was making sales within six months i was selling more than anybody in the whole office and there was 18 salespeople in there within 12 months I was the number one salesperson in Mobin, and I was being helicoptered in, not literally, but metaphorically, into underperforming branches all around the country to train their salespeople in the kind of things that I did. It was all about having conversations, all about having conversations, finding out what people wanted. So the pivotal moment there was definitely that conversation because it got me into a different world, a world of commerce rather than faffing around pretending to be a musician. What I remember about that conversation is not on that day, but six months later, when I was really performing in the branch, and I was top of the branch, and he took me on one side and he said, you know what, Johnny? He said, that day you walked in, looking like a right He said, I thought to myself, you're either going to be best salesman I've ever had, or you're going to be a complete And I said, well, there you go. Thanks for taking the risk. He says, oh, no risk. He says, we weren't paying you anything. You just taking up a desk, just warming a seat for a bit. But that was a pivotal moment, without a doubt. And the learning you know, the kind of hotbed of personal development that you had to undergo to, you know, all that stuff like getting a thick skin, never giving up, resilience, being able to just ask. You know, we'd go out in the freezing cold round Colston in Surrey, you know, near Croydon. I can see the streets with opposing rows of semi-detached houses on. And we'd have to walk up to the door and knock on the door and say, hey, you know, have you thought about changing your kitchen? And we'd get sworn at. I got punched once. The guy threw a punch and I ran off. It didn't quite connect, you know. And you'd get offers as well from 
bored housewives. This is becoming a real X-rated show. Isn't it? From the yeah, start, I knew. Pure, pure smut. But, you know, overall, it was just this incredible university of sales and marketing and commerce yeah. and personal branding and personal development, just being the person that people would want to buy a kitchen from. And you were doing all this learning on the job with no direction from anybody. I had a sales manager who was actually quite experienced and I've got a great fondness for him until, until the day he died. Lovely old boy who just took me under his wing, you know, saw the potential. He got a bit upset when I was selling more than he was. That's why I like Star Wars, because he was like the Jedi Master and I was the young knight, the young Skywalker, you know. That was a pretty cool experience and I was in and out of Mobile over a, kind of a 10-year period before I started a business on my own. I imagine that bedrock of experience has really stood you in good stead. My whole background is B2B corporately, but I started market stalls, waitressing, bar work. I loved it. It's people, real coal-faced stuff. And that's what sets you up for being able to have a conversation and remember that even if you were talking to a trillionaire CEO, or somebody just ordering their dinner. There's going to be one of those soon, by the way. It's probably going to be Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yes, it will be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that being able to deal with real people on any level and have that conversation is a real testament to a character to yeah. be able to then take that journey further in telling a sales story. Only later, you know, from that kind of raw, did I start studying, you know, some of the great marketers and salespeople around the world reading stuff, going on courses on programs that they provided. I've learned one thing about that kind of mentorship idea that I think anybody should only engage a coach or mentor or trainer who's already living the life that they want to live. And there's so many fakers out there, charlatans, even conscious frauds. But most people are just inadequate, I guess, at what they do. They, they haven't really learnt it themselves before they start teaching it. So I've, I've got that as a kind of byline. I'll only take anybody on as my coach or, or mentor or inspirer if they're doing something that I want to do, you know, if they're leading from the front and clearly showing that they've lived the life that I want to lead. And likewise, when people come to you for you to guide and mentor them, they want to know that you're doing the same. When people come to me, I do what I tell them. I still yeah. do that. Yeah, uh, it's great, isn't it? Because yeah. you learn all the time, you know, and we're able then to show people the latest best practice as well. It's what's happening. Yeah. It's real life. A lot of stuff is learnt from 30-odd years ago. It's coming back in fashion, a bit like my suits. But um, I, I also try and avoid people who are too far ahead of me, you know, in terms of who I'm going to learn from. You know, somebody who's been building an online internet marketing business for since the dawn of the internet, you know, kind of 20 years, 25 years. They've probably forgotten what they were doing when they started out. And, anyway. and it's all changed anyway, hasn't it? You know? yeah. yeah. That's really interesting stuff there, Johnny, that you've gone back to... The beginning, really, of everything that you've done. Just an evolution from there then, isn't it? I don't use the B2C and B2B prescriptive. I don't think they're so useful. To me, it's just H to H, human to human. And, you know, if someone is employed in, in a position, in a business, such that they can make a decision in your favour or otherwise, then they go through the same range of human emotions when they're evaluating whether to buy your product or not. They're thinking to themselves, what's the best that could happen? If I bought this from Wendy on behalf of my business, what's the worst that could happen? What's the risk? And what's the worst that could happen if I don't buy it? If I don't, you know, where will the company be if we don't do this? That's just the same conversation, internal conversation that you want to get going in a B2C 
environment. If you're just talking to a solopreneur, you want them thinking about all the great things that can happen when they're working with you, all the bad things that could happen if they work with you, which hopefully will be limited in number. More importantly, all the bad things that could happen if they don't. One of my colleagues in the States, I did a keynote at one of his events last year. I said last year, it's 2019 now. (laughs) year before last. Scottsdale in Arizona is a fantastic guy. He runs huge events for coaches and therapists. And he asked me to get up and, and, and talk to his tribe. But he came up with this phrase, which I think is fantastic. He was talking about competition and he asked the audience what they regard as their biggest competition. You know, people were saying, you know, other practitioners and Tony Robbins, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But he said, no, you're wrong. He said, your biggest competition is always a pillow and a mattress. And just like that, hang for a bit. A pillow and a mattress. Because getting somebody to do anything rather than do nothing, all right, and just stay in bed all day is your biggest challenge. And if you can get people really to feel the pain of doing nothing, what's the cost of inaction? Then you're halfway there. All you've then got to do, once they've decided to do something, to show them that doing your thing is the best answer. But if they haven't decided to do anything at all, if they can't be bothered, if they're not a motivated buyer, they're not going to buy your thing or anybody else. So I quite like that. Your biggest competition is a pillow and a mattress. So mm. true, so true. Lots and lots of people to think about there, Johnny. You've got me musing. I'm going to have to go away and have a little think as well. I'm, I'm, I'm musing yeah. as well. I, I like musing. I like good news. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing, Johnny. If anybody wants to pick up the conversation with you, where do they find you? Well, really simple. All they need to do is find the Johnny Hates Marketing Facebook group. We'll welcome them in there with open arms. That's Johnny without a her. So it's Johnny Hates Marketing. Just type that into Facebook and Facebook's very generous with its search results. There's no other Dave hates marketing or Sharon hates marketing or anything like that. So <laughs> No offence to any Daves and Sharons out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's lots of Daves who do hate marketing, lots of Sharon. <laughs> Just join the group. I mean, that's the hub of all things, the community with over 5,100, I think, 5,100 coaches and therapists in there at the moment. And they're all facing the same challenges and sharing the same hopes and dreams as uh, you guys listening are. Yeah, jump in there and we'll we'll help you. That's great. We'll make sure that we pop that in the show notes for you as well. We'll encourage everybody to subscribe if this is your first time listening. Take a look at the previous guests. We've had some great ones. And subscribe to make sure that you don't miss our future guests. We've got some real crackers lined up for you. Johnny, once again, thank you so much. Wendy, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for giving me the time. Appreciate it. On the next episode of Making Conversations Count really appreciate you inviting me to ask you a few questions. I'm just so happy that you were up for the gig, Nat. <laughs> <laughs>